Hey, welcome again. Uh, this is Scott. And this is Brad. And this is not about us. So anyway, uh, I got a special treat for you today, I hope. Um, some of you may know about this already. I've been encouraged over the last couple decades to see that the, today's topic has become blossoming in Christianity and in the world in general, but I'm going to talk about the Feast of the Lord today. Yes. All right. So again, some of you may already know about this, and I hope you do. I hope everyone listening says, no, I already know all about this. That would be awesome and very encouraging, quite honestly. But right now, before I move on any further, Brad, would you please introduce this today's topic and invite God in in prayer, please? Absolutely. Yahweh. <laughs> Yahweh. Today, this topic is pretty special to us. And the reason that it's so special to us is because it's about you. As always, it's always about you. But I want to get it right. I'm sure Scott wants to get it right too. So, will you be our source of truth? Will you be in this room right now? Will you be in the room of all the listeners and anything that is spoken, that is truth, that is from you, anything that gets your approval, will you let it be a seed in their hearts? If anything is spoken that is not from you, does not get your approval, may it die that quick death. God, we, we love you, we cherish you, and we hope to bring you some honor and glory with this podcast talking about your feasts so with that let's let's get started on this celebration of you amen thank you for that because that's exactly what it's all about a celebration of you yahweh god and that's why today's topic is so important to me we've talked about a couple of other things the name of God, for one thing, and how we've gotten away from the name of Yahweh over the, over the history of Christianity uh, and, and over time. And again, uh, similar to the Feast of the Lord, I see a move back to try to find the truth and to get back to what God gave us. And that encourages me. That so much, is encour so much encourages me. I was encouraged because I recently did a Google search just for the Feast of the Lords, and there is a lot of material out there now. Yes. So this is getting, this really is getting back out there, and that is very encouraging. So I encourage all of you to check things like that out. Uh, I hope if you've never heard about this, that it excites you and it interests you, and you do check it out. I hope if you have heard about this, if you've done hundreds of hours worth of studies, I hope this still ministers to you and, and encourages you, in, if nothing else, to solidify your faith and let you know that what you've been studying is right and, and we agree with you. So anyway, uh, I mentioned a little bit about the feast in my Genesis study when it came to the verse that talked about God put the stars in the sky for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And that word seasons we got into a little bit 
that uh, was talking about it's the same word, and we'll get into that briefly here. It's the same word that they use for feasts of the Lord, and we'll get into what that means. But first of all, I want to say Leviticus 23 is the primary source of information on the feast of the Lord. So we're going to focus on that. We weren't, we're not going to stay there. We're going to go to other sources too in the Bible. But another thing I want to say before I really get into this is I want to say thank you to Michael Rood for introducing me to this. Uh, it has been uh, more than two decades ago. Oh uh, boy, I want to say 25, 30 years maybe. Oh boy, I'm old. All right, only physically that uh, Michael Rood first introduced me to this. Since then, as Brad said, there's many others talking about this. There's many sources on the, on the web and other places, books and things like that. And so I do appreciate everyone that's trying to get this information out there. Today, I am going to be pulling mostly from Michael Rood simply because he does a very excellent job of organizing and presenting this information that we'll be going over. I would like to encourage everyone out there to check out three particular presentations of Michael Rood. Uh, the first one is is going to cover a lot of what we're going to cover today, and that's prophecies in the spring feast of the Lord. And there's a second part of that, prophecies in the fall feast of the Lord. I kind of consider them one total piece. So that I, I that's one of the things I mentioned. The other is the Jonah Code, which we will also briefly go into today. Uh, not Not much but uh, we'll share a little piece of that one today. And then there's one we will not be covering today. I still encourage you to check out The Great Secret of Solomon's Temple. Uh, and it's, it's amazing. I know I've mentioned this one before, but in that one they share how the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. Uh, and it shows in the Bible where Solomon did it. And, and there were so many clues in the Bible. And 500 years after Solomon, how they activated what Solomon set up and successfully hid the Ark of the Covenant from invaders. But it, it's, it's a fascinating piece. So I encourage you to check those out. And I also want to advise you that I'm not covering everything that I know of, which is not everything by a long shot. So today, I'm only covering some of the highlights to let you see the precision in the picture that God gave us. Brad, anything you want to add before we jump in? Just that I second that. Feel free to leave our page and go right to Michael Rood and see some of this stuff for yourself. If all, if, <laughs> as we've said before, you know, why would we send you away? Well, if that's where the Spirit's leading you and you find truth from that, then that's all we can hope for. Yeah, it's not yeah. about us, it's about him. And and definitely follow where the spirit leads, not where we lead. But uh, I got to say this is this is pretty cool stuff. All those things that you just mentioned about Michael Rood, um, all of those videos and whatnot, they're all available. Um, I I have to do a little searching on YouTube to find them, but uh, his channel is called A Rood Awakening. Um, so worth starting there, a rudeawakening.com. Uh, um, and rude is spelled R O O D, not R U D E. Right. Um, so yeah, but he has fun with the pronunciation. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, and he's a character too. He's he's a he's a cool guy. Um, but yeah, feel free to check those out. And uh, if you haven't left the page, then feel free to stick Great. around with us and let's do this. <laughs> You're about to get the Cliff Notes version. Uh, anyway, 
I'm going to start with the King James Version, Leviticus 23, 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. And then I'm going to read Leviticus 23, 1-2 in the Hebraic Roots Version. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, The appointed seasons of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim to be set apart convocations, even these are my appointed seasons. So, the reason I pointed both of these out here is because the word feast in the King James Version and the word season in, in the Hebraic Roots Version, uh, they were both taken from the Hebrew word moed or moedah. Now, this is the same word that I spoke to you about earlier in, in Genesis where it says the stars were put there for signs and for seasons. This is moedah, the plural, seasons, plural, that is moedim. So it means an appointment, a fixed time or season, a signal, or a feast. Now, in modern day, when we hear the word feast, we think of a banquet. I don't know about you, Brad. I think of a large table, a lot of food. There's going to be a whole lot of eating going on. Yep, I second that. And that is one correct interpretation of this. And, and it should not be discounted that these fixed times, these seasons, these appointments are also connected with feasts. These are meant to be exciting, good, wonderful things that we should be partaking in and enjoying. It's all a part of that. So that word feast is not an inaccurate part of this word, but it doesn't accurately paint the entire picture of what this word means. So I'm not attacking the word feast. It's a very good word, that that translation of this word. Now, God also said, you shall proclaim these to be set apart convocations, or the King James says, holy convocations. So the word convocation comes from the Hebrew word mikra, and it means from something called out like a public meeting. It also means a rehearsal or a reading. So among other things, the feasts of the Lord were rehearsals. Now to the Israelites, before Yeshua's time, they were remembrances of events of the past. But what we are about to see is they were also shadow pictures of events that Messiah would fulfill when he came. And that's one of the awesome things about this is the Gospels cannot truly be understood without an understanding of exactly what it was Yeshua to, was to fulfill. And this, these are one of the things we have missed for many, many years in Western Christianity, and I'm so glad to see we're getting back to it because we're starting to see what it is exactly that God gave us that, that he did fulfill in these feasts, and it is such a cool picture. So we've talked before. I've talked ad nauseum. Uh, if you're sick of it, too bad. I'm going to keep talking about it. But the Old Testament is is entirely its physical representations of spiritual truths. Well, the feasts go hand in hand with that. They are 
acted out physical rehearsals of spiritual truths. They were getting us to participate in the examples of spiritual truths and the physical representations of spiritual realities. So now I'm going to break the feasts down into three different categories. The spring feasts, the fall feasts, and category for right now I'm just going to call other because I simply don't have a better category for it at this time. Today, I'm only going to go into the fall feast because these take so much time. Uh, Today's podcast is probably going to exceed an hour, and I'm trying to cut it down and edit it, but uh, right now, only going to do the spring feasts. Now, the spring feasts, according to Leviticus 23, are specifically Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Shavuot. Now, for those of you who are paying attention, who listen to my Genesis podcast, I'm not breaking down the words uh, that I would normally do here were I in Genesis, words that stand out. Let's look at the word pictures. Let's break down the meaning in Hebrew and all that kind of thing. This is really a Cliff Notes version. I'm just broadly going over some of the exciting, cool parts about this. As I go through anything in the book of Genesis, as I go through verse by verse, I will be breaking them down in that way, but I I do want you to understand right now I'm not going to because there's so much information to go over and I'm trying to get it all in. So the spring feasts were rehearsals of things that the Messiah would accomplish when he came to earth the first time. Now Passover. Passover is the first one. Leviticus 23.5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at dusk, is Yahweh's Pesach. Pesach, that's the word we get Passover from. And again, I'm not going to break it down at this time, only to say it's what we interpret as the word Passover. Now, Passover happens in the first month of the religious calendar. So there's something to understand, that in Israel there are two calendars. There is a civic calendar and a religious calendar. And I want you to understand something. This in and of itself is an important picture. Exodus 12, 1 and 2. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe and Aharon in the land of Egypt. So they're not out of the land yet. They're, they're getting ready to get their people out. They're getting ready to head out to cross the Red Sea, but they're still in Egypt. And God says to them, saying, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now that month was the month Nisan. Now that month has come to be known as the month Aviv. That particular word Aviv comes about because of a particular It's an agricultural term that deals specifically with harvesting barley. And and it's a very interesting term. We're going to get into that a little bit later briefly. But right now, you just need to know that the months Nisan and Aviv are the same month. So, Nisan was the seventh month, and they were in the seventh month. And God says, this is going to be the first month of the year to you from now on. When the Israelites left Egypt, Yahweh told them to treat it as if it was the first month. So this, in and of itself, is a picture of renewal and redemption. The original being made new. The last part of the year being made the first. 
It's a picture of new beginnings, fresh, without sin, born again. This is a picture of the Messiah coming and setting us free from sin, making the covenant whole again. Now, the Messiah actually came in the fourth millennia. The very end of the fourth millennia is when Jesus was born. So if you think about it this way, a day to God is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, and we have a 7,000-year period designed by God in the Bible from Adam to, to the end of, of everything. And I don't just mean Armageddon, because Armageddon's going to happen at the end of the sixth day, beginning of the seventh. This is when God fully puts down Satan. After he's been bound for a thousand years into the pit, he's released one more time to try to conquer God, and God puts him down completely, he and all his armies, there's seven days, one week, one one week of thousand-year periods. So in one week, the first three and a half days are the first half of the week. The last three and a half days are the second half of the week. Jesus came at the beginning of the final three and a half days days of the week by coming at the end of the fourth millennia. That in and of itself was a picture that God took the last part of the year and made it first. It's the same thing. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam came, brought sin into the world. Jesus came and renewed us. He came and corrected Adam's sin. He gave us life again. He took the original covenant and made it as if it were new. So this, God telling them, take the seventh month, make it your first, it in and of itself is a picture of redemption. Anything to throw in there, Brad? I was thinking, too, that uh, the word renewal, uh, aviv can mean renewal. Um, Jesus also came and renewed uh, the covenant, You know, so I just see that picture in my head as well. All right. No, thank you for that. Exodus 12, 3. Speak you unto all the assembly of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So here we see what we understand to be the first Passover when the Israelites were in Egypt. And this is why the Israelites saw the Feast of the Lord as remembrances of things gone by. They were remembering when God brought them out of the land of Egypt, sent them out, and gave them their own nation, gave them the promised land. What we're going to see is how it was foreshadowing so much more. But here, we see him tell them, on the 10th day of this month, we're in the month Aviv, the month Nisan, On Aviv 10, in preparation for the Pesach, or Passover, the Passover lamb is selected in the sheepfolds of Beit Lechem. He is a male lamb of the first year. Priests will line up shoulder to shoulder on either side of the road, from the Temple Mount to the north gate, forming a path between them. The Kohen Gadol, which means high priest, will travel from the Temple Mount through the path, leave by way of the north gate, and go to Beit Lechem. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. 
it looks to me when it's spelled as Bayat Lechem. I'm not sure if it's Lechem with a K, Lechem, Lechem. So forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it. He will go to Bayat Lechem to get the lamb which has been pre-selected for this moment, carries the lamb back to the city. When he arrives at the gate, the priests at the gate begin to shout, Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord! Now they're shouting that at the top of their lungs. When they at the front gate shout it, the priests down the line start to hear them shout it, and they chime in until it goes all the way down the line. When every priest is, is shouting this, and they shout it over and over and over and over, when every priest begins to shout it, all the people in town who have come from all over Israel begin to shout it. And they continue to shout it as the high priest carries the lamb back to the temple mount. It'd be like a booming of thunder throughout Yes. You know, it'd just be a very impressive. So now, the lamb is inspected for four days. He's brought in on Aviv 10. He is inspected by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, by the priests, by everyone. And at the end of the four days, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, makes the proclamation, I find no fault in him. This was very important. If the lamb had any blemish whatsoever, he was still killed, but his blood was just poured out all over the ground. He was not put on the Ark of the Covenant for our sins because he was not worthy to be considered the the Passover lamb for the sins of the nation. So he had to be perfect. And they checked it out for four days, making sure they found nothing. In the afternoon of Aviv 14, the lamb is killed and put in the oven before sundown. It must happen before sundown because sundown marks a new day, which is a high Sabbath, and no work must be done on that day. On Aviv 14, there are actually hundreds of families that are sacrificing lambs all over the city. Now, these are lambs for each family of Israel. The Passover lamb is the final lamb that is slain. After the Passover lamb is slain as the final sacrifice, the Kohen Gadol will come out and he will say, I thirst. He is given water to drink before he stands before the entire assembly and shouts, It is finished. And then the lambs are eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs as part of the Passover meal, the Passover Seder. Yeshua was born in Bayat Lechem. He was born in Bethlehem. He is the lamb pre-selected for this event. So even by his very birth, he, his, he was part of this prophecy. This rehearsal every year that the one perfect lamb was raised in, in Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. And that's why. Now, Michael Rood, this next part, the lamb had to be a male lamb of the first year. Michael Rood does a fantastic job in the Jonah Code 
revealing how Yeshua's ministry lasted for 70 weeks. And it, in and of itself, was one of the prophetic fulfillments to the day of Daniel's 77's prophecy. And I encourage you all to check it out. It is amazing. As well as Michael Rood's chronological gospel, where he really breaks down with notes um, where Jesus was, what he was doing at the, at the time. It is fascinating. It's, it's, it really is. It'll, it's one of those things that uh, Christians just believe mm-hmm. that uh, Jesus preached for three years, mm-hmm. and he's going to show you with Scripture evidence how that's not accurate. Right. It's, it's worth looking into. Oh, it's very, and it goes much deeper into that than I'm going to get to at this time. The only reason I really bring it up is to point out that Jesus did fulfill this uh, part of the feast as well. He fulfilled this part that we miss. The male lamb had to be one year old. Jesus's ministry at this time when he was crucified, when he, at the time, he was crucified at the time of Passover, his ministry was just over one year. It was not three and a half years. Uh, that is a myth that cannot be substantiated. And th- there's no real evidence for it. There's no scriptural evidence anyway. But if it was three and a half years, that's an indication that we have a false Messiah. Because the male lamb taken from Bethlehem had to be Uh, one year old. So now Yeshua comes to the north gate riding on a donkey and his disciples begin shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And that set off the chain. The whole city begins crying it out. It sets it off. It cannot be stopped. This is the time in the scripture that the Pharisees ran out to Jesus And they yell at him, telling him to tell his disciples to stop crying out. They need to shut up. In their eyes, this sacred feast was being ruined. But this is when Yeshua said he would not. If the very rocks and trees had to cry out, they would. He was fulfilling this part of the feast. The Lamb, Yeshua, is now inspected for four days. He is questioned. He is prodded. He is probed by people not seeking answers, but seeking to find a flaw in him that they could use to destroy him with. But they couldn't. The lamb was perfect. At the very time the Kohen Gadol was to have concluded the inspection of the lamb and to have uttered those words... I find no fault in him. Pontius Pilate was sitting in his judgment seat and making that declaration about Yeshua. Anybody, I meet a lot of people sometimes that says, well, Jesus just manipulated the prophecies. I was like, oh, he he manipulated where he was born? He manipulated Pontius Pilate? There are some prophecies that you can look at and, and anyone, not just Jesus, but anyone, you can see, well, they just, they knew the prophecy, so they made it happen. That happens all the time. I get that. But there are some prophecies 
that you just can't fabricate. Like this, was Pontius Pilate in on it? Now, John 19.28, King James Version, and I read the King James because this always used to bug me as a kid, so I'm reading the version I read. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. That used to bug me. What do you mean, what the scripture fulfilled? What is he talking about? Why did he have to say, I thirst? Because, again, in Western civilization, we grew up with different celebrations. We did not grow up with God's feast. We did not grow up with them the way God wanted us to understand them. So, and this, and the reason I want to point this out is because when these types of things happen, they create confusion. They create conflict. They create an image that is false and is falsely revealing who the Messiah is and aspects about him. And that causes a problem. We're not seeing who he really is. He is perfect beyond our ability to comprehend what perfect is, and we're changing that? Instead of trusting him to understand what's going on better than we do? Anyway, I move on. That really used to bug me, but this is one example. That's why I bring it up here. Uh, A lot of things bug me because... I realize now we weren't getting an accurate picture of what was really happening. Now it makes sense. Now I see Jesus was fulfilling something here. He was fulfilling scripture. He was fulfilling the, the he, he was the fulfillment of the rehearsal they had been doing every year for a thousand years. The high priest walked out and said, I thirst. And could Jesus Im- fulfilled that. Could you imagine just doing this tradition? This It's just a tradition. You just do it over and over and over again. Eventually, you might even lose the importance of why you're doing it. Yeah. You know, And the, but they just do it over and over and over again, not knowing why they're doing it. Yeah. It's just an interesting, interesting little idea. Now, something else I want to throw in on that. Um <sighs> Jesus says, I thirst, so the scriptures might be fulfilled. But that got me thinking, why does it need to be said in the first place? Why did they say, I thirst? And when Jesus says, I thirst, what does it really mean? Because remember, we were looking at the spiritual reality of physical, these physical rehearsals, these physical representations. So what is the importance of, of saying, I thirst at this time. And something I'm going to point to is every depiction of hell I've ever heard of in the scripture or outside of scripture, when people talk about dying and going to hell and coming back, and there are certain people who have written books and, and, and shared their testimony where God came to them and said, I'm going to allow you to experience hell for a time so you can bring it back to the people and share it with them so they understand what's going on here. And there's a story in the Bible about uh, before Jesus came, uh, people in paradise being across a chasm from the people in, in that part of hell where they were suffering and, and tormented. And a man crying out to someone on the other side of the chasm 
Uh, the people of God were feasting and rejoicing, and the people in the torturous side were, were in pain. And he calls out, says, won't you give me a drop of water for my tongue? And in the, in the biblical story, he says, I, well, I can't. There's this chasm between us. I, I, I couldn't reach you even if I wanted to. Um, and I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing here. But everyone, every story has said the same thing. There's no water. It's absolutely bone dry. There's no water whatsoever. This is Jesus saying, I thirst. This is Jesus the water of the word telling us he's going to hell this is jesus this is at the very end he's saying i thirst he's he's prophesying he's still even though jesus is fulfilling the rehearsals of these feasts in his physical death right here and and everything that's happening even his actions physically are rehearsals and examples of spiritual truths. And in the physical here, he's telling us he's going to a place where there's no water. He will thirst. He is telling us he's he's going to hell. And then and only then comes the line. Yeshua utters the words that the Kohen Gadol spoke every year before this. It is finished and gave up the ghost and died. But I find that very telling, that only after he says the line, I thirst, indicating he's gone to hell for our sins, only then does the line come, it is finished. Any thoughts on that, Brad? It's just interesting because uh, right before this podcast, we were doing my last Revelation one, and and I had a picture in my head of uh, Jesus victorious rising from hell with the keys of death and hell and so now here we are prophesizing that he's going to go to hell he knows what must be done he's going to go in and do it and then it is finished the victory the rising up it's just a very powerful image in my head yes it's a very heroic image of our savior and that leads us to the next feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leviticus 23, 6 through 8. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto Yahweh. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a set-apart convocation. You shall do no manner of servile work. And you shall bring an offering made by fire unto Yahweh seven days. In, I'm sorry, it's just hitting me, the importance of that. And you shall bring a offering made by fire. The fact that that was specified right here, when Jesus would be in hell. I, I don't know why, right now it hit me for the first time, what they're saying right there. In the seventh day is a set-apart convocation, you shall do no manner of servile work. So now when the sun sets on the 14th day, it is now the 15th day and the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first and seventh days are of the feast are high Sabbaths in which no servile work is allowed. There's one really cool thing to see what happened here. Now, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
not only is unleavened bread the only bread that's eaten, but to prepare for this feast, you have to clean house and you have to remove all leaven from your house. Leaven is a representation of sin and you have to get rid of it from your house here. And one of the things Yeshua did right before heading out to prepare for his death was he took, the Bible says he takes the last piece of bread, which would have been leavened bread at the time, hands it to Judas and says, go do what you got to do. So he takes the leaven from his own flock, Judas, and sends him out of the house. He's cleaning house. Now, we come to the Feast of First Fruits. Leviticus 23, 10 through 14 is the whole thing. I'm only going to talk about the first part of it here. Uh, Again, because I'm talking briefly, giving highlights, not everything. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you are come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the Kohen, and he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the Kohen shall wave it. And there's more to it. You know, it goes all the way through verse 14, but right there, that's the important part I'm going to talk about at this moment and I'm going to show what happened here in a particular field on the Mount of Olives on Marheshwan 8 Marheshwan being the eighth month priests will plant a special barley crop now at the end of Adar the 12th month they will determine if the barley is Aviv or, in other words, if it's ripe enough to be harvested at this point. It's, it's, a, it's a term. Brad mentioned it too uh, earlier, uh, spoke about Aviv. It specifically refers to barley, which is another important thing we'll get into right at the very end of this podcast. But if it is ripe enough to be harvested, we begin a new year with the new moon. And we go into the month of Nisan or Aviv. This is why Nisan, the first month of the year, is also called Aviv. But if the barley is not ripe and it needs longer to ripen, then we give it a 13th month. We add a second month of Adar to the calendar that year. Now, this gets into the fact that Israelis have a 12 lunar, they have a 12 month calendar, but it's a lunar month, not a solar month. They don't go by the same calendar. So periodically, they'll have a 13th month to adjust to keep them on roughly the same timeline so immediately after passover priests will go to this particular field where the barley is now ready to be harvested they will select 10 omer of barley by putting a cord around each at some point during the week there's going to be a regular sabbath the day after that sabbath after sunset The priests go over to the Mount of Olives and they harvest the 10 omer of barley sheaves which they had previously marked. They take them back and process them during the night and they make barley loaves with them. The high priest remains in seclusion from the end of Passover until the morning when the barley loaves are ready. He then waves them before Yahweh as the first fruit of the barley harvest. Matthew 27, 50 through 52, part A. 
Then Yeshua cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were torn, and the sepulchers were opened. The graves were opened at the time of Jesus' death. The first fruits are being marked. Matthew 27, 52b through verse 53 goes on to say, And many bodies of the set-apart ones which were laid arose and went out from the sepulchers after his resurrection and entered into the set-apart city and were seen by many. So Matthew right here skipping ahead in the story and he's telling you right now that after Yeshua was resurrected, the first fruits from the grave arose as well. They were marked immediately after Passover when Yeshua died. They rose at the time of the harvest after the Sabbath when Yeshua had been resurrected. These are things we miss if we don't understand these feasts. He is fulfilling them perfectly and we're not seeing it. I don't know about you, Brad, but through, throughout my childhood as a part of the story of resurrection, I, it's right here in scripture, but it was never made a big part that the dead were rising again. Right. Well, I've been to uh, church sessions where they've tried to explain the whole Passover situation and whatnot, and Never, ever until I found you in the Michael Rood study did I hear anything about any of this. Yeah, because it's just, it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's so much ignored. I've heard people kind of talk about this as, isn't that amazing? Like, they just see it as the power of Jesus was so awesome that this happened. And, and that's not untrue, but we miss the fact that it was for a reason, we miss the fact that something specific is happening here that we were supposed to see. I think the problem, this is just my own personal opinion, but I think the problem that we have, especially nowadays as a Christian society, is we want to be entertained. So we look at this as, wow, God's entertaining us. He split the temple. He opened, people were resurrected. Wow, that's cool. I'm entertained by this. And then that's all the further we go with it. Yeah, You're not wrong. That's a big part of it. So Yeshua dies on Passover. That is undisputed. He is put in the grave just before sundown. That Nobody disputes that. The next day is a high Sabbath, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Nobody disputes that. that. That's a fact seen by everyone who, who is a Christian, who reads the story, whatever version you've got. Now, the next day was just a regular day. The day after that was the weekly Sabbath. Now, those two facts, those are disputed. Those are not necessarily known. I, again, encourage you, go check out Michael Rood's The Jonah Code, and he explains why they know this. And and he in much greater detail than what I can give you right now. But this is what happened. Yeshua rose just before sundown on that day, the third day that was the weekly Sabbath. 
the Lord of the Sabbath rises on the Sabbath, fulfilling the most repeated prophecy in Scripture. And that was that Yeshua would spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. When Mary saw him, he commanded she not touch him. It was because he had not yet ascended. The first fruits of the barley harvest, the dead that had risen, were being prepared. Yeshua took them to heaven with him and presented them to his father. Later that day, he then appears on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples after the time of seclusion was over, after the wave offering had been presented to Yahweh. Now they could touch him, they could deal with him, they could speak with him. Uh, Now his time of seclusion was over. These are things we miss. And then we come to the Feast of Shavuot. Leviticus 23, 15 through 16. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the day of rest, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the waving, seven weeks shall there be complete. Even unto the morrow, after the seventh week, shall you number 50 days, and you shall present a new meal offering unto Yahweh. So after the first fruit offering happens, we then count seven Sabbath days. So because a Sabbath is, ends a week, this has become known as the Feast of Weeks, but really that word Shavuot just means sevens. So this is the Feast of Sevens, really. So seven sevens are counted. The day after that is a high holy day. It is the day, it is the Feast of Weeks, it is the Feast of Sevens, it is the Feast of Shavuot. The Greeks named it Pentecost which means 50th, which makes sense. It's the 50th day. It's why they named it that. But we need to understand uh, that's not God's name for it. Pentecost is just an identifier. It's not inaccurate, but all it means is 50th day. Six is man's number. Seven is Yeshua's number. And eight is Yahweh's number. So Shavuot can be viewed as the eighth day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is the completion of the feast. Seven sevens lead up to Yahweh's day. Jesus leads us to Yahweh. After seven sevens are counted, we conclude with Yahweh's day. It's a day of celebration. All the people get together to pray, to worship, to thank Yahweh. They all come together in Jerusalem for this. It is a microcosm of the year of Jubilee when after seven Sabbath years on the 50th year, slaves are set free. Land is returned to its ancestral owners and everything goes back to the way it was originally supposed to be. This is a celebration of being set free. So all the people are together praying, worshiping, thanking in in all the city. The Feast of Shavuot closes with the dancing of the pierced one. A dancer playing a flute with five holes in it dances joyously up to the Temple Mount. Now John the Baptist said that the one who came after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And at the Feast of Shavuot, this prophecy began to be seen. Yeshua completed his work, his day was done, and we could be reunited with Yahweh once again. Acts 2, 1 through 3. And when the days of Shavuot were fulfilled, as all were assembled together as one, 
there was suddenly a sound from heaven like a powerful wind. And that entire house in which they were sitting was filled with it. And tongues that were divided appeared to them like fire and sat upon each of them. Again, going back to Michael Rood, if he is correct, the house spoken of here is not an upper room the way we've been taught about it in Sunday school. It's the house of God. All of the nations, including the disciples, would have been celebrating at this feast in one accord, praying, rejoicing, all together. The entire nation would have been doing this all together. So they're in the house of God. They're not in this upper room, according to him. Not saying it's absolutely right, but uh, again, listen, listen to those pieces and you'll understand what we mean by this. Acts goes on to say, all the people gathered, heard the wind, and were troubled because they heard the disciples speaking in their own tongues. How did they hear this? Because the disciples were right in their midst. They were all in the same place. The dancer, the dancer, Yeshua, pierced with five holes, dances joyfully in each of the disciples as his song is now played in each of them. The song and celebration goes out to all of us and in all of us. Yeshua did not create a brand new covenant. He made the original covenant new again. Adam had communion with Yahweh that was lost in the fall. Yeshua got it back. Hallelujah. So again, these are active celebrations that we were living uh, as, as the people of God and we were just experiencing that we've lost to this day. Any thoughts? Just thinking about how exciting it's going to be to experience these all again someday with our Savior. Yes. Now, I don't want to say by that that we should go back to doing it, that, that God hates us for not doing it, that we're being punished, or, or, or in some way uh, we need to go back to doing this or we're in trouble. No, that's not it. Again, I want to reemphasize the fact that all of these are physical examples of spiritual truths. The spiritual realities are what we need to understand, and the spiritual realities of what's being mentioned here is what we truly need to grasp. The physical examples are just that, examples. And when we lost these examples, we lose what they're examples of. We lose the reality that God is trying to tell us. We lose the story. We lose the real accurate picture of who God is. I'm not saying every one of you listening right now has to perform each of these feasts every year or else you're hated by God or anything like that. I am trying to tell you, you need to understand them and appreciate them for what they are. God-given proofs of who he is and if you're interested in the feast and it is something that you want to do um, i'll direct you back to michael rude's uh, website it's a rude awakening.tv um, rude r-o-o-d he actually has maybe not perfect but uh, they've put a lot of work into it, a biblically accurate calendar. So yes. all the things that we were talking about here about uh, is the barley ready? 
Um, is there going to be a 13th month? All mm-hmm. of these kind of things. Their web, they, their website is monitoring all of these things and they have, you can actually own the calendar if you want to, but you can also just go to the website. You can see when the feasts are supposed to be. You can see yeah. what should be done. You, sh- you can see how you need to prepare. It's really cool stuff. Now, another thing important about that is in looking to the future, uh, God in his perfection fulfilled these specifically on the day. These and the fall feasts all had prophetic fulfillments while he was alive on the earth that he did. We're going to get into the fall feast in in another one of these. But don't you think as God, as as perfect and as precise as he is, that he's not going to continue that? That we don't have a timeline that we're given for a reason? Am I naming a date and time when he's coming back? No. I'm simply saying they are markers that we should be looking at for specific reasons and we need to understand what he gave us and why. Jesus fulfilled them to the day uh, when he needed to fulfill them, as was prophesied by the prophetic foreshadowed pictures. There was a reason for that. He's, he's telling us something through all of this. Now, now I'm going to wrap it up. <laughs> I've got a few things to say in wrap up here, but a few things to point out. The first thing I want to say is simply the fact that I hope you guys all listening understand how awesome and cool Yahweh is with what he set in place. And sometimes it's so hard to change from something once we've begun that thing, especially with something we've fallen in love with and have very fond memories about. And I'm not saying anybody has to stop every tradition they've done all of their lives from here on out. I'm not. I am trying to say, don't you think what God has given us is so much better than what we could fabricate on our own? The second thing I wanted to say about this is the fact that it's showing how although Yahweh prophesied it and left clues to show exactly what was going to happen, it was still an undercover mission. Why? Why is that so? Why didn't God specify more plainly what was going to happen? Mark 1, 23 through 25 says, And there was in that same synagogue a man in whom was an unclean spirit. And he called out and said, What have we to do with you, Yeshua the Nazrati? Have you come to destroy us? I know you who you are, the set-apart one of Eloah. And Yeshua rebuked him. And said to him, shut your mouth and come out of him. Matthew 16, 15 through 16, and then verse 20 says, And Yeshua said to them, And you, who say you that I am? Then answered Shimon Kepha, saying, You are the Messiah, the son of the living Elohim. Then commanded he his Talmudim, that's Hebrew for disciples, that they should tell no man that he, Yeshua, was the Messiah. So Yeshua could have revealed this fact to all, but he seems to be hiding it. He could have explained the plan of redemption at the beginning. He could have explained how the feasts, the Torah, the prophets, everything already written and everything they already knew revealed who he was and what had to happen. 
This is exactly what he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So why did he do it with them and not before? Luke 24, 25 through 27 says, Then Yeshua said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe in all those things that the prophets spoke. Should not the Messiah have endured these things and entered into his glory? And he began from Moshe and from all the prophets and expounded to them concerning his nefesh from all the scriptures. What has changed that is making Yeshua reveal himself in this way? He was actively preventing to be known before. It's the cross. The crucifixion and the resurrection has now occurred. He has completed his task and fulfilled most of the spring feasts at this time. 1 Corinthians 2, 7-8 says, But we speak of the wisdom of Eloah in a mystery that was hidden and that Eloah had before separated from before the ages for our glory, that not one of the authorities of this world knew. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Adon of glory. Adon means Lord. The revelation of what Messiah was going to accomplish to fulfill the spring feast could not have been known ahead of time or Satan wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Yeshua's first coming was a covert operation. Once he had been crucified and resurrected, only then could he reveal that it had been written all along. Knowing this, then we need to realize that when we look ahead to his second coming, everything is written, but we may not see it clearly. We may not understand it perfectly until after it happens. We are to be watchmen. We are to be alert and ready, but we still see through a glass dimly. So be aware. We are, God is written and he is showing us things that will happen, but we might not see them perfectly until after they happen. Any thoughts on that, Brad? (laughs) So my only major thought here is that uh, the spring feasts show a suffering Messiah. Mm-hmm. When he comes back, it'll be as a conquering Messiah. Yes. And I got to say, he actually, Jesus says this himself. Um, he reads a portion of a Isaiah scroll and stops and says, today this has been fulfilled. Well, he's talking about the suffering part, mm-hmm. but he'll be coming back as a conquering Messiah. Mm-hmm. So I do look forward to looking into these fall feasts and just try to get an idea of how that might be. And that's also going to be really important as we continue on in my Revelation study. Yes. Uh, so I'm look, really looking Very forward uh, to that. But uh, I don't know. I kind of kind of get chills when I think about Jesus returning as the conquering Messiah. Uh-huh. It's going to be awesome. Now, one last thing I want to go in with you, and we'll wrap this up with this thought. And I mentioned it earlier, the barley. The barley harvest is when the spring feasts happen. Why is that important? Why why the time of barley? Why is this the time of Aviv? The spring feast, Jesus came as the suffering lamb, the suffering savior to bring us into back into communion with God. 
the fall feast of the time of national redemption. He's going to win back his world. He's going to finally wipe out sin, destruction, the hell and the grave, and all of that. That comes at the time of the wheat harvest. There's something very important to understand here. Brad, do you know how barley is, uh, once it's harvested, uh, it, the seed has to be separated from the chaff? Do you know how that happens with the barley harvest? So I, I have image in my head of the chaff basically gets separated and it's you know basically just blown away, but explain it to me in, in better detail. Well, no, you've got it right there. Basically, the barley harvest is separated. The, the barley seed is, is separated from the chaff by just laying it out on the ground and taking shovels and forks and scoops and things and tossing it into the air because the barley seed rises up and drops and the wind just blows the chaff away. It's very lightly attached and, and you just toss it into the air and the wind carries the worthless part away and the, and the whole seed is preserved. Do you know how wheat is harvested? Or, I, I'm sorry, after the wheat harvested, do you know how it's separated from the chaff? I do not. It is laid on the ground and they take big boards. The, the, the chaff on wheat is very much tougher and very strong around the seed. And they take big boards, and these boards have glass or metal or rock or whatever sharp, rugged object they have that's sticking out of this board, and they rub it, and they grind it, and they shove it over the wheat, and that separates uh, the, it separates the seed from the chaff. And in a very grinding, very destructive manner, you separate the 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 chaff, this the seed from the chaff. Now compare the two. The barley is just you toss it up and it just lightly blows away. And then the wheat, you grind it with this board and you pull that seed out of there and you rip the chaff off violently. Do you know what that board is called? The tribulation board. This is literally where we get the word tribulation. Wow. The wheat harvest comes at the time of the fall feast when Jesus is going to return. The barley harvest happened at the time of the spring feasts. When Jesus came to say we could have communion again with God the Father. Guys, I implore you personally, right now, you have a chance to be barley. You have a chance to let the chaff fly away freely in the wind, in the wind of the Spirit. Just let it carry it away. If you want to hang on to your chaff, it will be tribulated away. There is a reason for the tribulation that's coming, and it is not to kill us. It's not because God's angry, and it is not because he hates us and he is so ticked off at us that he wants to beat us down. It is for those, it, it's because he loves us. It's because the seed has to be pure and all of the garbage surrounding us has to be gone. And if we don't give that freely, he's going to have to use tribulation to remove it from us. So I implore you, give him your heart freely. 
Give him your heart freely or you will have to go through tribulation. Now, that goes beyond just end times thinking. There are people who lived and died hundreds uh, and even millennia ago that have gone through tribulation. We all, in all of our lives, have, a, have this choice. So I just implore you all, choose wisely. Give him of your heart freely. Let him blow away the chaff easily. I would agree with that. Does that sound like a good place to stop for you, or do you have anything you'd like to add to this, Brad? Nope, I think that was great. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. We'll get into the fall feast on the later later one, later podcast. And like I said before, if you've heard these before, I hope this ministered to you. Five As Brad said in the prayer at the beginning, I hope anything that came from me just gets thrown away, and I hope everything came from the Spirit gets absorbed into your heart. As always... This has been Scott, and this has been Brad, and this has been Not About Us.